If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think it's something that 13% of the blue plaques in London um, represent women. I think it's less than 3% of the statues in the UK currently represent women who were real historical women, so not a mythological character or a representation of an idea, um, and weren't royal. That was Sarah Jackson talking to us about how women in history are remembered today. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today's interview is with Sarah Jackson, a historian who co-founded the East End Women's Museum. She recently participated in an event at the Institute of Historical Research in London, themed around how historical women are commemorated in public. 
looking at everything from statues to plaques to banknotes. And Sarah continued on this theme in an interview with our Deputy Digital Editor, Eleanor Evans. So to start with, I guess it would be great to look at the key differences at this time between historical commemorations of men and women and um, how they are commemorated and celebrated in public. Well, I think it's, um, to be honest, it's it's just a, a difference in terms of quantity as much as anything else. There's just a gap. There's a lot of women who are kind of missing from public memorials, from, from pedestals, streets and public places. Um, I think the statistics... Oh, you may have them in front of you, but I think it's something that 13% of the blue plaques in London um, represent women. I think it's less than 3% of the statues in the UK currently represent women who were real historical women, so not a mythological character or a representation of an idea, um, and weren't royal, because obviously there's a few knocking around of Queen Victoria. So there's actually just, there's just a lot of missing women, women missing from pedestals, um, who achieved extraordinary, noteworthy, uh, statue-worthy things in in the past, but haven't made it um, into those public spaces. And and without wishing to, you know, go down the the route of very obvious things, could you talk a little bit about the societal factors that have led to this imbalance? Oh, yeah. Um, Well, I think it bears repeating because what we found quite often is people sort of because they don't see women's stories and women's voices and experiences represented in museums, in statues and history books and in popular history, sort of TV, they um, they sort of assume women weren't there. Like they all, uh, I don't know, women were out sort of making the tea during the, the Civil War or, uh, you know, popped up to the shops and, and, and missed the Norman Conquest or something like that. But actually, women have been um, not only witnesses to history, but participants in history and have actually um, been pioneers, have, have uh, been in roles that perhaps later became associated only with men. For example, during the First World War, there was a huge craze for women's football and there were an enormous number of women's football teams that a, a whole league, you know, throughout the country. And as it became so popular, it was felt necessary to ban it in 1924. So, you know, it, it, a lot of people wouldn't necessarily think that and have thought traditionally that women didn't take part in sport or didn't have a history in football. Actually, that, that's not the case. Uh, and I think part of the reason is why they've been forgotten, why kind of women's stories have been sidelined is partly at the time, you know, there have been sort of additional barriers for women to access the situations and kind of achievements which have typically been recorded in the history books. So, you know, for example, um, you know, uh, waging a war or inventing a new uh, technological discovery or becoming prime minister, you know, because of the societies have been traditionally more sexist centuries ago, but also in recent history, women have found it more difficult to uh, get into those spaces where the eyes of history are on them, not only through overt discrimination, but also because women are carrying usually uh, an extra burden of kind of uh, the responsibility for housework and childcare, which doesn't tend to go away when women are in kind of public facing roles or or kind of working outside their home. They're often doing a double shift of work outside the home and unpaid work inside the home. Um, then there's also uh, the impact of, of violence against women. We know that um, violence against women has a huge impact today. Um, you know, there's women, of course, when they've stepped outside 
of traditional gender roles, um, perhaps been perceived as transgressive. Um, they've been at even greater risk of that kind of violence and that kind of backlash. So I think there's sort of reasons that, you know, women haven't made it into those historical spaces at the time. But then there's also been a process of forgetting because history um, has tended to be written, history books have tended to be written by men and they've tended to focus on men um, and, you know, white, wealthy men as well. So it's certainly not only women that are missing from our kind of popular idea of history. Um, and there's a lot of work that's been happening for the last few decades, really, sort of women's historians um, have been working to put those stories back in place, put women's stories back on the, the, the pages of our history books. And that's kind of just something we're trying to continue. And a recent event at the Institution of Historical Research saw several historians discuss campaigns such as that to put Jane Austen's face on the £10 note and the campaign to erect a memorial statue of Millicent Fawcett in London's Parliament Square. If if we could talk then about um, some of those notable campaigns, certainly the campaigns that might have received the most publicity, the campaigns that people might be familiar with. Uh, so I... I was fortunate enough to be invited to speak at um, a panel discussion at the Institute of Historical Research, which took place recently, um, with uh, speakers including Caroline Criado Perez, um, Rebecca Surrender from the University of Oxford, um, and uh, Becky Higgett. Um, it was a really interesting event, um, really well attended, um, and we had a really fascinating discussion that, that all the panel uh, seemed to kind of agree about, that we need to explore different forms of commemoration and a recognition that women's history, um, the nature of women's history, doesn't necessarily lend itself to statues of individuals because um, perhaps there's something often more collective, more collaborative um, about how women have worked together. At the event recently um, was Caroline Criado Perez, who um, some listeners might know from her campaign to get Jane Austen on the £10 note. Why, why do you think that was important in terms of the publicity it got and in terms of raising awareness for this um, overall aim of getting more women into these public spaces? Oh, I definitely feel it was it was a landmark campaign, not only um, because it it's sort of showed... Um, it sort of showed people how... Uh, quickly women can become erased. I think um, there's a feeling that once uh, a woman's story is is in the public domain, um, it's been recognised as an influential figure the way Jane Austen has, that, you know, that story is always going to be available to people. But it only takes, you know, one decision um, to accidentally erase kind of all the women um, in, in one go. And that's exactly what was um, in danger of happening. So I think it kind of reminded people not to be complacent that um, just because a figure might be known from your own childhood say you know there may if, if we don't keep fighting to uh, keep the space we already have um, for women's stories that they might disappear again um, I also think it was a landmark campaign because the backlash um, to the decision to not have a woman on a, on one of the notes was so intense and I think so surprising that uh, it sort of showed them I think that people were paying attention and that they they couldn't just make a mistake like that again without people getting angry without women speaking up about it in in huge numbers so I do think it was very important and of course because um, it was a successful campaign I think that really inspired people to uh, sort of do the same again we've got to keep making noise um, to keep women um, in public public spaces. You mentioned the backlash there, and that's that's something that um, I'd really love to talk about. Is is the debate that still surrounds um, 
all of these campaigns to either erect a statue or get a, a, a historical woman in, in a public place. Why do you think that they these conversations do provoke such um, vigour and such debate? Well, I think, I mean, the, the simplest way to, to put it is to say, I mean, our, our history matters and statues matter, particularly public memorials, I think, because um, it's it's a way that a society shows uh, what it values, who it values, um, something, a very high status memorial, like a public statue or um, a banknote, you know, it says a lot about who is important to that society. And so feelings do run high um, and it does matter. Uh, I think it's also what something we found sometimes is that by suggesting that women's stories are included in history, there's a perception by some people, um, predominantly men, that that means men are going to be excluded somehow. So, for example, if we include Jane Austen, um, we're going to suddenly forget about Churchill or forget about, you know, Newton or Henry VIII. Like, I don't think that's how it's going to go down. If we, what we want to do is, is um, just bring in more different, more diversity, expand history. So there's a kind of richer history that's available to everybody. It's not about um, uh, taking anything away. <laughs> um, it's about adding. And I feel that sometimes as a culture, we're used to seeing very um, male-dominated culture, for example, in, in, in Parliament Square. Um, it wasn't widely known that all the statues were men until, again, Caroline Criada Perez pointed it out, um, because we're used to seeing that. And so I think for some people to see um, just a little bit more representation can feel quite threatening. Um, and I think there's sort of, a, I don't know, uh, people do seem to get very upset about it. And um, I think it's a shame because actually, the, the more stories that are out there, um, there's more role models for everybody. It means everybody's got someone to look up to. And that's that's what we should be aiming for. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist recommended facial moisturizer brand. To the people who do say, well, it, there's an imbalance for a reason because the powerful figures in history were mostly men. What do you think is behind that? I think it's a very simplistic view of history, to be honest, but I understand it because it's one that we most of us um, experience at school. It's the one that's reflected to us um, through a lot of popular history, which is this idea of history as a sort of chain of important people and events. Um, but I would question who gets to say whether someone is important and who gets who's deciding which events and which achievements are important and which ones aren't. And um, I think it's it's not a history isn't a neutral process. There's um, a decision making process there um and which tends has tended to privilege rich white men um and i think some of the uh you know things that possibly were very very important at the time that a, that a memorial was created say you know somebody um gave uh, supported the, the king's army during a during a battle or something people would argue whether that's actually the most interesting um piece of history we could highlight today um that's it's a political process about who gets chosen to be remembered and who gets forgotten then as now. Um, so uh, uh, I, I would say that the idea of, you know, who, who, what is important and who gets um, to be remembered is, is, is not simple and neutral and objective. I also think there's an argument for um, expanding the, how we commemorate uh, individuals in history, but also how we commemorate events and uh, movements. I One of the things that was very interesting in that uh, Institute of, of Historical Research discussion that you mentioned um, was the, the panel all agreed that, particularly importantly for women's history, we need to find um, ways of commemorating history that, that doesn't just focus on one individual and one act or one achievement, perhaps. Maybe recognising that a lot, of his, uh, a lot of social change comes about through the, the work of many, many people. Um, there may be one figurehead, but it's actually often collective action which creates change. And that is much more difficult to represent in a statue or on a plaque um, than, than the life and, and, and times of one person. Um, and yeah, I think it's there's some interesting artworks, uh, public artworks that are trying to uh, work around this this kind of very very narrow focus on one person, one individual, um, and are representing uh, groups of people. And this I think is particularly interesting for women because so many women are unremembered and unknown. So you've got statues like. Um, the uh, unknown woman worker in Belfast, which is is two women uh, who are kind of symbolic of women who've who you know have contributed um, through paid and unpaid work, but have never had any kind of particular recognition for that. Um, there's also in Sheffield recently unveiled um, statues of uh, the, the women steel workers during the war, and they're, they're two women. They're, they're, it's a realistic statue, but they're not named individuals. And I think that's an interesting uh, way to kind of maybe um, honour the, the the people who haven't made it into those top positions or and to recognise that, that often what you're memorialising really is the work of, of many, many people rather than one person. 
And I suppose we should say that um, this event and, of course, many events happening in um, 2018 are marking the centenary of the Representation of the People Act, which uh, gave the vote to some women in Britain and Ireland for the first time. And you're involved in a project at the moment about East End suffragettes. And I suppose it goes back to what you were saying about commemorating the many as well as the few figureheads. Um, Could you talk a bit about that project and the exhibition? Um, yes, I'd love to. It's a, it's a, it's actually a perfect example because the the East London Federation of the Suffragettes, which was this really interesting and unusual group within the suffragette movement uh, that were based in East London, um, they did actually have a Pankhurst in their midst. They had Sylvia Pankhurst, who was their leader for their whole kind of uh, lifespan between 1914 and, and 1924, um, and. You know, she is actually the, the kind of least known of the best known. She's she's one of the um she's she's not as famous perhaps as Emmeline or, or Christabel Pankhurst, but she was an extraordinary woman in her own right. Um and what we found is that although people are starting to discover the East London suffragettes remarkable story, they tend to focus on Sylvia. Um, partly because she's a very charismatic um, individual, partly because she's a panker, so she's got the famous name, um, and I think partly because you know she was a middle class woman who was who was leading a predominantly working class movement. Um, so actually, her voice comes through the archives much more strongly than most of the um, the other women who were involved because, for example, she wrote two volumes of memoirs. You know, she wrote her letters. They are recorded in um, in an archive, whereas a lot of the other women she worked with, uh, women like Melvina Walker, Julia Skur, Minnie Lansbury, um, were not, they were not, um, didn't have access, didn't have opportunity, uh, didn't have a confidence perhaps to, to set down their own stories in the same way that, that Sylvia did. Um, so our exhibition's really trying to, although we, we've, we've obviously, Sylvia's part of it and we've we've sort of made a space to tell her uh, individual story, we're trying to focus on um, uh, all the kind of other women who were involved because it was thousands of women um, that were members of this organisation. And what they achieved is, is incredible. They were not only campaigning for the vote, but um, when the war broke out, they uh, worked with their community to um, tackle the deprivation that resulted head on by through a, a range of kind of social enterprises, I suppose. So they opened a cooperative toy factory to provide employment for women who were out of work. They opened a nursery so that women working in the factories could could leave their children um, somewhere safe. They uh, opened a chain of, of cost price restaurants to make sure that the local, um, their friends and neighbours, their community um, could access cheap, nutritious food. Um, so they were doing all these interesting activities. Um, and it's really, you know, we want to focus on some of the women that, that people haven't heard of yet this year um, and make sure they get a little time in the spotlight as well in this in this extraordinary year. Um, the exhibition's on at Tower Hamlet's local history library and archives, and that's open from the 30th of May until the 20th of October this year. So uh, you've just mentioned there um, a wonderful exhibition that people can go to find out more. Um, but who are some of the the unknown women that you and, and other ongoing campaigns would like to see commemorated and would like to see um, included in public spaces? Oh, well, I mean, there are there are so many. Um, and obviously, we're focused on on East London, which is, you know, is is plenty to, to work with. But there's, you know, stories from from all around the country um, and there are there there are a couple of campaigns um, already for example Sylvie, Sylvia Panker's statue campaign um, trying to uh, place the statue of Sylvia in 
uh, Clerkenwell Green and the Mary on the Green campaign are fighting for uh, a Mary Wollstonecraft statue in Newington Green. Um, and I, I think they're both excellent ideas. Some of the um, more obscure women I'd love to, to sort of bring to people's attention um, include there's a there was a, a boxer called woman boxer called Annie Newton, who um, uh, was one of several women boxers in in Victorian uh, Victorian England, and she uh, started uh, learning boxing um, age ten, and she began very early to um, fight in in sort of stage fights to to raise money, and she she would do tricks. So, for example, her her most famous trick, I'm told, was um, that she could punch a punching bag 900 times without missing, which is pretty amazing. And her um, husband passed away during the first, was, was killed during the First World War. So she became a single mother and she was supporting her daughter by um, offering boxing lessons to women and men, you know. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of people wouldn't, again, it's like the women footballers. They wouldn't necessarily think that women had been involved as athletes. And she was very famous. She was very well known at the time, but forgotten today. Um, another one uh, that I'd, I'd love more people to know about is... Um, a woman called Mary Frith, who was uh, also known as Mole Cutpurse. And she actually, again, was very famous in her day, had two plays inspired by her, one by uh, Thomas Decker called The Roaring Girl. And she was um, she was kind of a rogue. She wasn't a role model, but um, it's an, an example of kind of women's history in the wider sense. So not just looking for uh, women who might be worthy to put on pedestals, um, which is actually, it's a lot to ask of someone to be completely without flaws. But I think we also need to look at women's history um, in the round so that these are individual people and some of them were up to some quite dodgy things. So Mary, she was a, a well-known thief. Um, she started getting into trouble when she was a teenager and her guardian um, decided to ship her off to America. It was way to deal with the problem um, and sort of managed to get her onto a ship. But as it was leaving the port of London, Mary broke free, jumped over the side of the ship and swam back into town um, where she lived um, a, a life of notoriety. She was uh, famous for dressing in men's clothing. She would smoke and drink and gamble. Um, she was actually bet by um, a friend of hers that she wouldn't dare to ride uh, on a horse from Charing Cross to Shoreditch dressed as a man. And she said, I, I will take that bet. I will absolutely do that. So she bought a horse. She bought herself a trumpet and a banner to wave <laughs> just to show how confident she was. Um, and she set off from Charing Cross. Apparently, she got all the way to Bishopsgate before um, someone she describes as a plaguey wench uh, recognized her and, and started shouting and drew a crowd of people who um, shouted at her saying, thou shame of women. Um, and she got a, got a bit worried about this and ended up uh, going to an inn that she knew it was run by someone, a friend of hers, and hiding in the inn with the horse until the crowd had gone away. And she crept out at night and then finished the ride to Shoreditch and won the bet. Um, so there's really remarkable stories, both both uh, people that we would look up to and perhaps people we might like to steer clear of. Um, but but I think that's the thing. History is so rich. And when you actually include more voices and more perspectives, um, it becomes even more enjoyable. So in terms of this this wave of um activism or, or campaigning for this public commemoration of women. It's also happening alongside global movements such as the Me Too and Time's Up movements. Um, what do you think, is there anything owed to, to that, to the campaigns? Can they be linked? Well, I feel like at the moment it's, um, they're, they're sort of both part of 
a resurgence of interest in in feminism and feminist ideas. Um, I think there's a very politicized group of young people, young women um, coming up and taking from the past, taking inspiration from from the past um, and sort of recognizing, I think, some of the parallels. Sadly, some so many of the uh, campaigns, women's campaigns from the past, are, uh, people, women are campaigning for exactly the same kinds of um, issues today. Like I mentioned before, our violence against women was a problem then as now and as with sexual harassment. It's, it's sadly still extremely relevant. So I think there's what, what's happening now is is a, a very modern, very um, powerful, active movement that is referring to its own history, to to those lost stories, and um, drawing inspiration from those for the fight. Um, going back to what you said about uh, not putting these figures or these women or anyone indeed on upon a pedestal. Um, can you talk about the challenges of not judging these historical figures and, and picking and choosing who is commemorated with, with modern eyes? Oh, absolutely. It, it, it's really difficult, I think, for one person to represent an entire uh, group of people. And that is what the, the pressure that's kind of being put on the women who are now being recognised is that they have to represent all women. For example, you know, Parliament Square, I think there's, is it 11 statues of men and, and one woman now? And that woman has to represent all of us. <laughs> and I think this is one of the, what I was saying is one of the the difficulties with public memorials as they are at the moment how how something statues and plaques they're very very um, limited in in how much they can commemorate um, and I think that while it's important to have conversations about who is remembered um, and as I said it's it's a political conversation then as now and we need to hear all the different voices and different perspectives and the arguments you know for and against different people but ultimately I think we also need to explore alternative ways of remembering people um, and so it's perhaps not just a matter of kind of public memorials in the way we're familiar with them but um, you know th- there's things like archives and museums actually offer much more opportunities to show people in the round to recognize the context that they're in, to um, record the stories and voices and experiences of of ordinary people, of us, of, of, of everyday people, perhaps people who didn't do something extraordinary, um, but, but had lives that that can illuminate our own anyway, um, that we can we can forge a connection across history in a way through an archive perhaps that's easier. Um, than with a statue. I feel that sort of we need lots of different kinds of remembering, basically, to to try and make sure that we're actually um, allowing all those different voices and experiences through and not only focusing on this very narrow idea of history where it's only important people who did important things, because even if we shift the definition of important slightly or we open that gate a little wider and let maybe women in as well, maybe one woman, then we're still in danger of, of... kind of, you know, missing the point in a way. Um, I feel very strongly um, that, that we all contribute to history. We're making history right now. And it's important to, for people, I think, living their lives in the present to know that they are making history, that they are their stories are just as valid as somebody who might be up on a pedestal. 
given these discussions that have been happening both nationally and globally, um, how much further do you think we have to go? That's a really interesting question because I it's obviously delightful this year to um, see so much attention being given to women's history, to public commemorations of women. Um, I find it very um, inspiring and it's also been very different to my experience up till now. What I keep questioning though is what happens next year is this going to continue? Will we be able to maintain the momentum? Um, and I feel that while it's fantastic that a woman has finally been admitted to the statuary on Parliament Square, I feel that some of these gestures maybe are they predicated on on tokenism? Is it, what is the project? Is it to make all public statues and memorials fifty fifty men and women, or is it one or two? You know, I I think. Um, I wonder how far would be too far, if you see what I mean. Um, so I'm really hoping that people will continue the conversations they've been having this year about not only about all the women that we should be celebrating and the women who've been forgotten, but but about how we remember them and where and how many. Well, that's fantastic. And as you said, it's a fascinating discussion. And well, thank you so much, firstly, for joining us, Sarah. It's been great talking to you. That's great. Thank you very much for having me. And I, I should say as well that to get more information on the exhibition that Sarah mentioned, you can find more at www.womenshall.org.uk and many articles on the campaign for women's suffrage and women's history can be found at our website, historyextra.com forward slash women's history. That was Sarah Jackson. You can find out more about her work at eastendwomensmuseum.org. And if you'd like to have your say about which women from the past deserve more recognition today, then why not take part in our online poll? Head to historyextra.com forward slash 100 women to take part. And just before we go, here's a message for any readers of our global history magazine, BBC World Histories. We're currently running a survey to find out what you like about this publication and what you think could be improved and we'd love to get as much feedback as possible on this. If you do have any time to share your thoughts, please do so at historyextra.com forward slash BBC WH survey. OK, well, that's about it for today's episode, but we'll be back on Monday to find out about the history of the national debt. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.